This episode features dramatizations and discussions of racism, imperialism, and confinement. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single depiction of the Wicked Fairy. Today's episode combines elements from a number of French and world legends and stories for dramatic effect. Hello, my friends. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. Today, we're continuing our perilous journey through the land of the Fae with our series on famous fairies. Every week, we'll explore the legends, origins, and whispered rumors that surround the fairies we know and love, along with a few that are a bit too frightening to have made it into our bedtime stories. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're discussing the Wicked Fairy. While she might be most familiar to you as the party crasher from Sleeping Beauty, her true origin and her true powers are far more frightening than any social faux pas. Join us as we find out that there really is a fate worse than eternal sleep. Coming up, we'll delve into the tropes that define this fae mistress of evil. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Of all the classic depictions of the wicked fairy ruining a royal christening, the most popular is likely Charles Perrault's The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood from 1697. The passage reads, Just when they were all about to be seated, a fairy who was getting on in her years entered the palace. She had not been invited because she had not left the tower in which she had been living for more than 50 years. Everyone thought that she had either died or fallen under a spell. Her head trembled more with malice than from old age as she decreed, the princess will die after piercing her finger with a spindle. But the Wicked Fairy is actually much older than Perrault's tale. She is first mentioned in a 13th century French epic poem called Yuan of Bordeaux. In it, a knight and his party have a tense meeting with Oberon, the king of the fairies, who tells the knight that the Wicked Fairy cursed him at birth to stunt his height. She also appears in the 17th century tales of Marie-Catherine La Jumelle de Barneville, who wrote under the name Madame Dulnois. 
She coined the term fairy tale and depicts the wicked fairy in three different stories, the hind in the wood, Princess Mayblossom, and the blue bird. In each, a wicked fairy named Carabos, the fae of the night, presents as a dangerous take on the standard fairy godmother. She avenges every slight against her and her goddaughter, often at the expense of the girl's rival, another young woman who's been blessed by other fairies with beauty, grace, and talent. It's interesting to note common themes in Dulnois and Perrault's choices, as they were contemporaries. The wicked fairy is almost always old and forgotten by the royals due to the assumption that she'd been lost to time. Her curses vary, but they tend to involve animal transformations and last for a set length of time. And the person she's punishing is almost always an innocent. It is said that every fairy worth her magic had a godchild. But getting one wasn't easy. It required an invitation to opulent christenings thrown by fussy parents with a taste for gold and jewels. Each fairy had to present her gifts to the child, which had to be equal in beauty and value. Only then did one lucky fairy get the job. Sometimes infighting between the fairies broke out and the entire castle was destroyed. Being worthy of a godchild was a tough, nasty business, and it didn't matter a whit to Carabas, the one fairy who had never had a goddaughter. Of course, she went to the parties and gave the children her usual blessings, which reflected her dominion over the night an owl to act as a pet and messenger, a cloak that would glitter like the stars if the princess so wished. To Carabas, these were enviable gifts. But her sisters, the fairies of the day, summer, spring, fall, and winter, lavished princesses with traits and talents, a perfect singing voice or promises of unrivaled beauty, even when they'd made the same vow to another princess the month before. But cynical, shadow-loving Carabas had given up on a godchild of her own until the birth of Princess Aisha of Ethiopia. The day the princess came into the world, bamboo flutes, musical bows, and lyres announced her arrival. All of Ethiopia held dances in Aisha's honor, and her parents threw the expected fairy feast. When Carabas arrived, she was bored by the jubilation and the piles of gifts. She watched only half-interested as each of her sisters approached the princess's cradle to present their gifts. This was a party like any other, but all that changed when she saw the child. When she looked over the edge of the infant's cradle, everything the music, the dancing, all faded away. There was nothing but the tiny princess looking back up at her. Carabas took in Aisha's large round eyes and wide nostrils with the tenderest affection. She brushed her finger against the princess's soft skin, admiring the rich black, as warm and dark as a midnight lily under the summer moon. The baby laughed and the fairy's heart leapt with joy. Carabas had lived many years and many places, 
but she thought she'd never love anything as much as her dominion or herself. But Aisha smiled at Karabas, and that was it. Suddenly, she found her cynicism replaced by anxiety. What gift could be worthy of a child this special? Karabas's sisters gave Aisha the same old presents and enchantments. But Karabas knew Aisha wasn't like other princesses. And not only that, the world she would live in wasn't the same. It had widened. It used to be that only the Fae could travel across it using their castle of magical mirrors. But the mortals had overcome their fear of the seas and were exploring new continents, often taking what didn't belong to them. Aisha was facing a different world, and Karabas would have been a terrible godmother if she didn't acknowledge that. So she leaned close to the infant's ear and whispered, My dearest Aisha, I could never improve upon you, so I humbly offer this. I love you, I believe you forever, and I will make the world better for you as long as I live. Of all the fairies, the king and queen were most touched by Carabas's gift, and to everyone's surprise, they asked the night fairy to watch over their daughter. For the very first time, Carabas had a godchild of her own. Carabas took her duty to the little princess seriously, but unfortunately, the Castle of Mirrors did not belong to her alone. Sharing her seat of power with her sisters meant that she could not always be at Aisha's side. Carabas was forced to travel, alternately working or frolicking, depending on her sister's tempestuous moods. Carabas hated to frolic. It was on one of these tiresome outings that she met the Queen of Luxembourg. Carabas had sought out some peace and quiet at a fountain near the castle. She sighed, listening to the waterfall as she watched dusk turn into her beloved night. But soon, a sound pulled her from her moment of peace. A woman's crying was coming from the other side of the fountain. Carabas sighed and stood up. It was too much of a racket to ignore, so she followed the sound. And soon, she was surprised to see the queen sobbing. Carabas sat next to her and gently asked what was wrong. The queen explained through her tears that she desperately wanted a child, but even her own godmother, the spring fairy Tulip, had been unable to help. Carabas sighed. Her sister Tulip never had much imagination. Growth was her specialty, but when things refused to grow, there was little she could do. But Carabas was a fairy of darkness. The night belonged to her, and so did the realm of dreams. So she took one of her own children, a tiny moth, and imagined her as a pale pink baby who looked like the queen. The queen called the child Desiree. No one asked Carabas how she'd created the child, and so she did not tell them. At the baby's birth, Carabas stood aside as Tulip flew past her to tickle the infant's cheeks, and her other sisters admired the little girl's shining red hair. But Carabas was satisfied enough. She'd done her part, and she wanted to get back to Aisha. So, without objections from her sisters, she took her leave 
and disappeared across the sea. Carabas treasured the chance to spend time with her goddaughter. She knew it was only a matter of time before she would need to rush back to Luxembourg for Desiree's christening, but no invitation came. Carabas was merely annoyed at first, but the more she thought about it, the more furious she became. Desiree wouldn't exist without her, and yet the queen and Tulip forgot to invite her? Carabas once thought Desiree and Aisha could be friends and allies, but now she vowed to never let Desiree anywhere near Aisha. It didn't matter how pure she'd been when Carabas made her, an inconsiderate mother like the Queen of Luxembourg would raise a horrible, spoiled child. Fueled by anger, Carabas flew to Luxembourg's castle for the feast. Her sisters had already given their unimaginative gifts, singing, needlepoint, etc. But Carabas's would be one that no one would forget. Carabas swept in with her black hair billowing and a dark gleam in her eye. The crowd drew back, ooing and eyeing in fascination and fear. Carabas basked in it all. It had been so long since she'd thrown a good tantrum. She proclaimed, I think, Majesty, that I have been overlooked. The Queen of Luxembourg burst into tears. Tulip rushed forward, sun shining from her fingers as she stretched her hands out in apology. It's my fault, dear sister, please. We got carried away. Come, Carabas, and sit by me. But Carabas didn't care why they'd forgotten. There were ancient laws that had to be obeyed, even if insipid little Tulip had forgotten them. So she seethed through a polite smile. Of course, sister, but I must give the princess my gift first. Carabas floated to Desiree's crib. The princess's fair skin was already glimmering with enchantments, and her eyes had the eerie glow of the moon. Carabas sighed. You have bestowed so much light on Desiree, dear sisters. I fear she will burn. Let's keep her safe inside, shall we? Give her an appreciation for the darkness, one you seem not to share. Tulip protested, but Carabas spoke over her. You had your fun with your new toy, sister. If you wish to play further, you must join the princess in darkness. For if Desiree sees the sun before her 19th year, you will never see her again. Coming up, the princess's fates become intertwined. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on miracle healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, 
tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple to Charles Manson and the Manson family to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. As Carabas announced the gifts she had in store for Princess Desiree, the hall in Luxembourg's castle erupted in gasps. The queen cried and Carabas's sister Tulip begged. But the wicked fairy of the night didn't care. She could have cursed the princess with much worse. After all, she was the one who'd created her. Instead, Carabas merely insisted that Desiree spend her first 19 years hiding from the sun. That was nothing, really. Satisfied, the dark fairy took her leave of the scandalized court and returned to where she truly wished to be, in Ethiopia with her beloved goddaughter. Carabas traveled back through the Castle of Mirrors to Princess Aisha's side. As she stepped into the child's room, Aisha shrieked with delight and ran to her. She placed little kisses on the fairy's cheek and regaled her with stories of her recent adventures. And Carabas vowed never to leave her for long ever again. In the 19 years that followed, Carabas kept her promise. She was with Princess Aisha whenever she could be. Luxembourg was no longer a country she wanted to visit. Her sisters had learned that making demands on her would not end well. It was a good thing, too, because Aisha needed Carabas. Her parents passed away during one horrible summer, and the fairy had to do her best to help the young royal rule and grow up at the same time. Carabas tried not to think about Luxembourg. Well, she did tell Aisha of a spoiled princess called Desiree as an example of who not to be. And yes, sometimes she willed the darkness to linger a bit too long over Luxembourg. Mostly, though, she'd put it all behind her, truly. Carabas had resolved to stay out of Europe, but then Europe came to her. In Aisha's 22nd year, the Crown Prince of France arrived in Ethiopia for his royal visit. He brought jewels and wheat on the back of stately horses. Princess Aisha wore glittering robes spun by the fairies, a golden headpiece nestled in her dark curls. Her eyes were downcast as Prince Gerard entered, but as he drew closer, Aisha lifted her head and smiled. Unlike other fairy godmothers, Carabas didn't trust love at first sight and cautioned Aisha against it. But love is stronger than caution. Soon, the royal pair became a couple, whispering and laughing as they strode through Aisha's palace and villages. Gerard proposed at the end of his visit, and Princess Aisha's smile was more brilliant than the stars as she told him yes. Carabas didn't believe it was love, but uniting France and Ethiopia could bring things closer to balance in the mortal world. That gave her joy. 
Gerard was forced to return to Europe to defend his northern border, but before he left, he gifted a portrait of himself to Aisha. Carabas blessed it with the truth of night so the couple could speak to each other through it when the moon was full. She tried to be pragmatic with Princess Aisha, but the young royal's heart had been stolen completely. When they stopped receiving word from Gerard, Aisha paid it no mind. She made excuses for her beloved. He was fighting in several wars after all and had little time to write. But both the princess and Carabas knew that France had been in a stalemate with its enemies for a long time. The battles had ceased, which made Gerard's absence all the more unsettling. Each night that the full moon rose, Carabas held Aisha's hand, waiting for the painting of Gerard to animate so Aisha could speak to her love. But each brushstroke remained stiff. Gerard never came. Rage built in Carabas as the days stretched into months. Princess Aisha did her best to carry out her royal duties, but she rarely slept. She spent most of her time with her eyes fixed on the painting, which seemed to be crumbling on the wall. At long last, answers came in the form of a French emissary. Carabas bristled at the idea that Ethiopia was no longer worth a visit from the prince himself, but she bit her tongue nevertheless. It was clear that this man was not the king's preferred emissary. Bernard, as he introduced himself, was as thin as a stick bug, with beady blue eyes and nerves that made his frame shake. He would not meet Princess Aisha's eyes as he told her that Prince Gerard had fallen ill. Choosing his words carefully, he explained the prince spent his days and nights inside a small closet, talking to the walls. The king could not in good conscience let their marriage go forward. Aisha calmly asked, Would not the sunshine and fresh air of my kingdom heal him? Gerard has spent too much time indoors. Bring my love to me, and I promise you that he will be cured. Bernard nodded slowly. That would be an excellent idea, your majesty, but I'm afraid he is held captive by an obsession. A deep suspicion gnawed at Carabas as she asked what Gerard was obsessed with. Bernard admitted, a portrait of Princess Desiree of Luxembourg. Carabas seethed. She had not given Desiree that much magic. If the princess had enraptured Gerard so completely, there was something else at work. Carabas had to discover what it was. As soon as Bernard the emissary had left, Aisha retreated to her quarters and Carabas followed. There, Aisha, stately, graceful Princess Aisha, fell into her bed and wept. Carabas wiped the girl's eyes and told her that Gerard had been bewitched, but she would get him back for Aisha. The young woman sniffled, but then she straightened her spine and said, If Gerard can be seduced so easily, I don't want him back. Carabas insisted, No, no, this is my sister Tulip's work, I'm sure of it. Desiree is not able to see the sun. She cannot travel. I doubt she's even met him. 
Aisha's eyes widened, and she asked why the princess couldn't see the sun. Karabas smiled and shrugged. Just a little curse, dear. You know how these spoiled queens are. She'll be fine, and we'll steal your prince back from her. A voice thundered from Aisha that Karabas had never heard before. She sounded like a grown woman. You will not do this on my account. I have made no wish and no request, godmother. Leave them be. May they deserve each other. I will mend my own heart, and someday another prince will come. Karabas cradled her goddaughter's face in her hands. I know you think that now, but you'll learn in time. You cannot let these things go. Aisha turned away, upset. Karabas shook her head. Aisha needed to learn how treacherous Tulip and Desiree and the Queen of Luxembourg could be. After all, that was the way of the world, and Karabas would find that proof with Gerard. So she dissolved into shadow and made her way through Aisha's bedroom mirror. By the time the princess turned back, Karabas had disappeared. Moments later, the fairy emerged from a mirror in the French palace and crept her way to Gerard's chamber. What she found was unsettling. It was as Bernard had said. The prince was ardently reading love poetry to a portrait of Desiree. Carabas waited for her sister Tulip's magic to reveal itself, but the paint never moved. Desiree's pale blue eyes remained still in their frame. Carabas refused to believe it. She emerged from the shadows and grabbed Prince Gerard, demanding to know who had bewitched him. He recoiled, tumbling over a chair as he cried, Leave us alone. You have no power here, wicked monster of night. They have hidden my Desiree where you will never find her. Carabas laughed, looked at the painting, and asked if he thought Desiree was hidden within it. It was certainly the kind of trick Tulip could pull off. Gerard stood tall and shook his head. No, I am merely practicing for tomorrow when she turns 19 and I marry her. Desiree is the most beautiful creature in the world and she belongs to me. And I am her whole world. Carabas rolled her eyes and said she highly doubted that. But Gerard grinned and insisted. She told me herself in a letter after I sent her my portrait. She has never seen anyone like me. Carabas thought Desiree had Gerard wrapped around her spoiled little finger, but it appeared as though the princess was just as besotted with this foolish prince. Carabas sighed. She did not want to be troubled by this. She had left thoughts of Desiree and her horrid mother behind. If Gerard truly was smitten, then Aisha was better off without him, and Carabas must focus on mending the rift between her and her goddaughter. But she found herself pestered by troubling thoughts. Had she neglected the little moth she'd given human form? Did the candles and darkness not sustain her? Did she fall for the first idiot prince to show her any attention because she couldn't go into the sun to meet any others? And if Aisha found out how she'd mistreated Desiree, would she ever want to see Carabas again? 
there was only one place with answers, the one place she vowed never to go. Coming up, Carabas reunites with her creation at sunrise. Now back to the story. Either the Kingdom of Luxembourg had lied to Prince Gerard, or they had severely overestimated their own cleverness. Princess Desiree was not hidden away where she could never be found. She was merely locked in her quarters, with curtains drawn to block out the sun. Carabas stalked the palace, hiding in the servants' shadows as they prepared teas and pies and cakes for the princess's birthday, the day where she'd finally be allowed to walk in the daylight. Spoiled indeed, Carabas thought, just the kind of fanfare she expected for a girl who'd stolen Gerard's heart away from the noble Princess Aisha. Though Carabas had to admit that life locked in a tower did seem stifling, so she resolved to withhold judgment until she met the princess herself. She waited by the tower as night fell and watched as the curtains to the princess's quarters opened wide. She expected to see a servant, but it was Princess Desiree herself basking in the soft glow of the night sky. Carabas watched her for hours, curious. Then, just before the break of dawn, she rode the moonbeams into the princess's chamber. She'd been preparing her words for hours, but once she appeared, Carabas found herself unsure of what to say. But she didn't have to say anything at all. The pale girl ran to Carabas and embraced her, crying, Mother! You are my mother, yes? I've seen you in the night and in my dreams. I've always been told that a kind fairy made me for my parents before that wicked monster cursed me, and I'm just so certain that it's you. You are, aren't you? Carabas didn't know how to answer, as she was both mother and monster. And this girl seemed so small, much younger than 19, more foolish too. The fairy suddenly felt grief and anger, though where to direct it she did not know. So all she did was admit that yes, she'd made Desiree. Desiree clapped her hands and exclaimed, Oh, you must be in the wedding! Gerard will be so pleased! Carabas felt sick. She asked how well Desiree knew Gerard. Desiree looked down at her hands and admitted, only a little bit. He doesn't mind that I've seen less of the world than he has, and his portrait is lovely. I'm sure he'd like to meet you. I can't wait to meet everyone. I've been very good my whole life, and I'm finally ready for the sun." Carabas felt another pang of guilt. All of this was her fault. She'd made Desiree too delicate, like the moth wings she'd spun her from. Carabas drew closer and asked if Desiree knew how she was made. Desiree looked at her strangely and asked, What do you mean, mother? I know the ways of maiden and knights. I've read of courtly love. Carabas shook her head. No, princess. How you were made. Desiree told her that she didn't understand. Carabas sighed. Of course she didn't. She asked, 
What do you know about magic, little girl? Desiree thought for a long time, then said, I know of my curse and that I was a blessing from my fairy godmother. Desiree smiled, and Carabas felt a pang of guilt. She approached the girl and told her, You were a blessing, are a blessing, but you are not human, not as your mother is, or your less-than-princely prince. Carabas expected Desiree to blink, but she didn't. Her eyes remained open, dark and bulb-like. Her long lashes were stiff and alert, like moth antennae. Then Carabas was distracted by light glowing through the curtains. Dawn was breaking on Desiree's 19th year. Soon, the princess would be able to see the sun, and she would use her freedom to marry an undeserving twit of a prince. Carabas asked suddenly, Do you like the moonlight, Desiree? The princess replied that she did, but she didn't seem enthusiastic. Carabas's heart sank as she probed further. So you're sure you'll prefer the sun? Desiree put her hand to her chin to think. After what felt like an eternity, she spoke. I think, if I'm honest, I prefer candles, mother. Lanterns. They're warm and close, and they feel like how I imagine the sun would. They're my sun. Carabas smiled, tears in her eyes, and said, You can always have candles, Desiree, whenever you like, no matter your form. Though I'll admit, they are more beautiful at your true size. Desiree smiled and said that if she had to choose, it would be candles. Carabas nodded, then looked to the curtained window. Dawn is breaking. You may look outside when you're ready, child, and you will become yourself. Desiree's cheeks glowed with the same soft pink of the waiting sunrise. She smiled with excitement, then threw open the curtains. Sunlight poured into the room, traveling up Desiree's dress, each beam dissolving it into dew and spider webs. The princess didn't make a sound. She only stared at the sun, the warmth, the light. It touched her skin, which began to change too. She was painted a deep, glittering purple, dappled with vibrant orange. Wings grew from her shoulder blades, insect wings, shimmering violet and blue. The orange spots glowed like crackling flames at twilight. She grew smaller and smaller until she was no bigger than the palm of Carabas's hand. She was a moth once again. Carabas didn't speak. She only lit a candle. The creature drew away from the sunrise and followed the flame, flapping around it entranced. Carabas dried her tears, shut the window, and whispered to the moth, I could never improve upon you, so I humbly offer this. I love you. I believe you forever. I will make the world better for you as long as I live. She sat watching the moth until the candle burned down and the wick went out, leaving them both in darkness.
Even in a modern reality far from fairy tales, the wicked fairy's curse feels particularly painful. She places a threat on the princess's life that forces her into isolation, waiting for a day the danger will pass. That curse reflects a shared experience for many people, medieval or modern quarantine. 16th and 17th century France was racked by multiple epidemics, some coming at an average of every three years. These illnesses were often blamed on outsiders and foreigners, and the rich frequently tried to flee populous areas where the sickness was prevalent. And so the wicked fairy's curse of isolation becomes something all too familiar. But though the wicked fairy is a force of darkness, perhaps it's only in the literal sense. Like many fae, she also stands in for an idea or an unspoken truth. In Madame Dulnois' The Hind in the Woods, she punishes the princess as a result of injustice done to someone she loves rather than to herself. And it's this keen sense of duty to protect her loved one that makes her all the more complex. In some versions of the story, she casts her spell and leaves a charming prince and her fairy sisters to clean up the mess. In others, she actively tries to trick the princess, but she always disappears before the end, giving up rather than being punished the way an evil stepmother or treasonous king would be, suggesting you can never truly escape the consequences of your actions. Perhaps this is why the wicked fairy and her Disney-fied equivalent, Maleficent, have become anti-heroes in their own right. They speak to a painful truth, that we hurt people through our carelessness, and you never know what someone will become if you hurt them enough. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Riche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 